the reason they're at Harvard and Yale is because they're good at what they do. And Harvard and Yale doesn't pay like the private sector. So anyone who's not a communist is going to be a capitalist and they're going to go after capitalist tendencies and jobs instead of the communist approach, which is why all education institutions are riddled with, I would argue, socialist instead of pure communist. But like it's way more substantial in academia than virtually any other aspect of society. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll we'll just take like a few minutes here to get prepared. I've got the uh, audio recording, but I'm gonna turn the uh, cameras on only once. Uh, oh, once okay. Time. Can we adjust this uh, table position? Sure. Like to, towards me. Towards you. Yeah. You shift the top of the table too. It's just the legs not. Yeah, yeah. Much further. No, the legs don't need to go any further. That should be good. Fucking Russians. <laughs> I think I just I just need to put a pillow behind my back. Okay. You know what? I should just move the whole arm. That's what I should do. I'll just move it this way. And Well, I want it closer to me, but I don't want it like fully extended the way yours is. Mm-hmm. Like, so I think I'm going to. Well, yeah, I've got mine fully extended because I don't want it to like be up like in the camera and at the same time yeah. i like to lounge back a bit more than you do so yeah no i fully understand i'll put mine on the corner here that should be good you have to channel that bd <laughs> i gotta crack a couple jokes so i don't say something outlandish when we started <laughs> I mean, I'll still probably say something outlandish, but <laughs> hopefully it'll be on topic. Um, and you know what I think would be probably more productive, and I should have done this uh, from the get-go. I should, we should have like a, like, Admittedly, Elden Ring is is the reason why I've forgotten to do this uh, over the last week, but we should kind of just run some ideas by each other and like topics that we should research more so that we're better prepared for certain subjects uh, throughout the course of the week. Well, uh, on like on Discord or something. Yeah, I mean, I feel like on bounce more ideas off together every week. Yeah, I feel like at the like at the point where you're uploading the video. We should be going back and forth about what we want to talk about the next week. Yeah. And so like this week, Agreed. Is, I mean, these couple weeks at least is primarily geared towards Ukraine and more or less current events to some degree. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely not going to be current events always. Yeah. Well, right. But I mean, like in particular for next week when we have um, what's his name again? Will. Will. Mm-hmm. When we have Will here, like that's going to be way more questions poking prodding learning you know 
and like that kind well, of and that's why I didn't do too much prep because I was not expecting i I figured we'd maybe do ten ten minutes to recap some Ukraine stuff, and yeah. uh, I was fully planning on being a facilitator because I was like it's gonna be a way heavier discussion between you and will than uh it will be me like I can talk about some of the enterprise and uh uh level uh impacts uh, mm-hmm. of uh failures in cybersecurity and uh I had a good conversation with Matt about it this afternoon because uh, I was telling him that we were going to record uh, with that focus in mind. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's going to be part, part of it, I guess, would be like, you definitely need to make sure that me and Will don't go too technical. Yeah. Well, that, fortunately, so like, that's why I brought a sales guy on instead of another engineer. Instead of an engineer. Yeah. Okay. Because it shouldn't, it shouldn't happen. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, like he speaks your language, but also he he knows how to break it down in a package he, that. Well, right, he's and talking like, to executives. I'm definitely able to break down the technical sure. stuff, but at some point, I don't want to get to where I'm talking about like SQL injections and shit. Like that's yeah. not <laughs> that's not the point. Yeah, yeah. He uh, the reason I. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we'll see see where we get. I just wanted to do a ballpark of an hour since we don't really have a full outline of what we want to cover and that and Danny was talking about having a fire tonight. So if I can make it back in time to sit at the fire with a drink, that'd be hot. Make sure I put on all my do not disturbs. Also, totally unrelated to what we're doing here, but the Samsung uh, S22 Ultra, which is what I have, people, I keep getting updates like daily about all the issues that they're having. And I'm just like reading them on my phone going, I don't have any issues with this phone. (laughs) I don't know what the fuck y'all are doing. Discord's not set up to magically open. Right. Not that we had a lot to begin with, but uh, Discord does weird things all the time. Yeah. Um, 
down here. It's That's actually not a bad idea. When Will's here, I'll probably have my phone and my stylus with uh, notes and stuff. Yeah. That'll that'll help me have a more fluid conversation with him. And mm -hmm. So I think I'm going to open with uh, talking about how we're trying to re recap some of the events here, but we're not going into the nitty gritty details. We just want to talk about uh, some of the areas, like a focused treatise on where some of this has escalated in particular with re regards to sanctions, uh, with regards to uh, just the global effort that this has created and uh, really backfired on uh, Putin in that you know, this was, uh, I, I think he really underestimated how much the West would come together uh, ideologically because it's been so divided. Yeah. You, you want to start there and then move into, like, sanctions, World War specifically? Yeah, so then, then I'll talk the, about the economic um, conditions in Russia right now and how, you know, their central bank is limit limited and how they can operate. They... So they don't have access to all of the funds uh, within, like a, a, a lot of uh, the central bank's foreign held assets are currently frozen. Mm -hmm. They haven't been seized, but they are frozen. So that uh, puts them into limbo in terms of whether the, they need to draw on that. A really very real threat of a Russian credit default uh, exists. And um, I mean, just how like seeing a, currency of a prominent global economy drop nearly 50% within the span of 10 days time is unprecedented. You know, we've seen, we've seen things like that happen to Brazil is like the most recent uh, country that is a, a large economic, uh, large economy that that's happened to. And that it's still been uh 20 something years, uh, I think since uh, 20, 21 years since uh, Brazil's economy has faced anything like that. Yeah, I mean the most recent one would be probably Venezuela, but that's nowhere on the level of no. Yeah, know, they're Brazil's a large economy, economy but definitely not like, like top that. ten, uh, right? And theirs was a much slower, slower process too. Not that they're really involved, but I wonder what stance South America has taken on it. In particular, leaders like uh, like Bolsonaro. I'm kind of curious, but that is. Curious about their stance, but it's not like they really have much influence. No, no, and they have the good fortune of uh, not needing to care too much. <laughs> I do just want to check. One thing real quick.
All right. You're a little bit more informed than I am in terms of the actual uh, recent events in the Ukraine situation. So okay. it'd be cool if I kick it over to you for uh, some of those updates. Yeah. In terms of the specifics of the... Uh, I mean, largely, I'm just going to be recapping that, you know, there's very much still ongoing fighting and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, recently, um, Russia bombed and has effectively taken control of a nuclear power plant there. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, you know, the failed assassination attempts of Zelensky, mm-hmm. how much of that's propaganda is unclear, but we definitely know that Russia is targeting him and yeah. other top Ukrainian officials. Um, is there anything else in particular you want me to point out? Well, I just, I want you to talk about, um, if you could, if you could, kind of open the topic of sanctions and then I'll get into some more specifics and analysis oh, yeah. of it. Yeah. Okay, I can, I can run my yeah. On that, yeah. Okay. Get it. All right. Welcome to episode number two of Esoteric Artifacts. Today, oh shit. <laughs> I'm always going to flub this at least, at least... I, I've got to flub it at least once. Uh, this is why we're post-processing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not equipped to do live stuff. Or I, I could I could be a guest on something live. I mean, we're, I, we're definitely equipped, but yeah. we are not at all practiced enough yeah. to be first times good, right? Yeah, yeah it's like I said, the, like those, there's those kids that grew up like, I want to be a radio announcer practice in front of the mirror a thousand times <laughs> oh yeah it was like uh i love that uh bill uh bo burnham's uh art is dead <laughs> yeah. he's talking about those little kids who wouldn't shut up and, like needed all the attention and shit like yeah you always knew you were gonna be talking in front of people and like announcing and shit like <laughs> oh yeah The real question, the question I have is whether I should, uh, whether I should tease the content for next week or whether I should, uh, not do that because like, I I mean, I would say if you want to, I would tease it at the end. Okay. Yeah. Well, only reason I I say that is because I was thinking about throwing a little line or two in about mentioning how we're not a current events podcast. It just, yeah. When there is something of very serious gravity to be discussing. Um, well, especially something like this that yeah. has so many different aspects to it. Yeah, I guess what I, what I can say is mm. while we typically don't aim to cover current events, we will cover them if they have significant impact on, on specifically on the areas of economy or technology, because that is our focus. Yeah. All right. two cameras again so i can just do whatever i want while you're on yes (laughs) well you've got the main that's nice right (laughs) i can't be bothered to get up i was like i need chapstick but whatever i'll live (laughs) just go for it (laughs) all right welcome to episode number two of esoteric artifacts 
I'm Subash. This is my co-host, Glenn. Um, today, we're going to be providing a little bit of an update on what we talked about last week. Uh, do apologize for the audio issues. We have that sorted out this week, and uh, you won't have to be subjected to that again. Um, we're talking about Russia and Ukraine, and specifically, we want to talk about the impact on the economy, uh, especially. We typically don't aim to cover current events, but when it interfaces with something like the economy, and it's something uh, that has serious consequences for the global economy. We definitely want to focus on that and talk about what some of those impacts are and what some of the potential for it to shape up and uh, how, how, how that can. Uh, God damn it. Lost- I, I just completely lost it there. <laughs> no, I, I, man, I never saying, lose it that bad. You were doing so well wow. and then you just like totally lost wow. the bread. I, I, uh, my sentence structure was just like, I was like, what am I doing? Where am I going <laughs> sentence? How do I bail myself out of this? I can't bail myself out of this. Well, I was literally sitting here waiting like for you to say the word technology. I was like, yeah. once he gets yeah. through to technology, yeah. then he's going to move on and it'll be good. But <laughs> yeah. Okay. I've got it now. All right. Welcome to the second episode of Esoteric Artifacts. I'm Sabash. This is my co-host, Glenn. Today, we're going to be providing a little bit of a recap on the Russia-Ukraine situation. While we are not a current events show, uh, we are going to be covering current events where they interface with the economy and technology in particular, as those are uh, two of our main focuses with the show. And this entire situation has major impacts on the economy, not just energy markets, but on a lot of other areas of it as well especially with regards to sanctions. And it definitely has some impact on technology. Um, Really fascinating thing is how currently, you know, only through very recent advances in technology does anyone in Ukraine currently even have internet connectivity. And uh, Glenn, if you'd like to mention. uh, So, yeah, just to kind of walk through some of the things that have changed and, you know, the more recent events since our show last week. Um, You know, Russia has continued their assault on the Ukrainian people and Kiev in general. And um, we know that Russia has actually bombed the uh, nuclear power plant in Ukraine and has effectively taken control of that area. We're not sure to what degree or what aspects of it they're using. Um, But also, I mean, some of the more recent events in particular is you the sanctions performed by the west or enacted by the west on russia have actually been you know to my surprise a lot more severe and been ramped up a lot faster than i was originally expecting not only on the governmental side from the us and our european allies but also in the private sector as well yeah i think we've really seen you know, just unification on an unprecedented scale. You haven't really seen anything like this since the Cold War, perhaps. I, I Maybe to a lesser degree around the peak of the War on Terror post-9-11 era. But, uh, you know, you've seen universally Western company uh, companies, uh, really, you know, large, these large multinational companies that have are headquartered in uh, Western nations uh, take steps that go far beyond what the government would have even advised them to do had you know our governments yeah put, in, a, applied any leverage on them in particular just recently with the visa and mastercard yeah, themselves a few hours ago yeah. yeah have imposed their own sanctions on top of what the u.s government and other european governments have done on their own well and that's really unprecedented because 
we have seen Visa and MasterCard take action, uh, you know, unilaterally for social reasons. I, I think the most prominent example that I can think of of this happening is in the wake of um, it was, I think, I believe it was the Parkland shooting. Um, Visa and, and or MasterCard, I can't recall if it was just one of them or both, decided to threaten uh, to withhold services to uh, several large retailers that carried firearms at that time. And they effectively forced the decision on those companies at that time, said, hey, you can either sell firearms and accept Visa and MasterCard, or you can be stuck with Amex and Discover and, you know, no longer uh, carry firearms. And this is obviously on a much larger scale than a large private corporation like Visa or MasterCard uh, applying leverage on a retailer like, uh, I think it was Dick's. I think I think that's right. And and at the same time it's a lot more it's a lot more general, but it's also a lot more targeted in this instance as well because they're not strictly preventing any Russians from using visas that were established in Russia, but they are very heavily restricting the flow of money and the use of cards outside the nations where they were actually provided. Yeah, so let's just make that clear how exactly that works. So Visa has issued new rules stating that any visa issued by a Russian bank can essentially be used internally within Russia. However, it cannot be used outside of Russia. Um, And similarly, any visa or MasterCard that is issued outside of Russia cannot be used inside of Russia currently. And this is a pretty serious impact. A lot of uh, wealthy Russian nationals in particular uh, bank in Europe, they bank in the United States even, they, they have plenty of foreign held assets. So it's not, it would not be surprising if also their credit cards and their other, their other uh, accounts are uh, managed through a uh, visa and MasterCard as payment processor. Well, that's another thing that's very interesting and unprecedented about this current situation we're seeing in Ukraine and Russia is not only is technology dramatically different currently than it ever has been in any prior conflicts, but at the same time, financial institutions and the global economy itself behaves very differently than it has historically. There's a lot more movement among um, top business officials and flow of money between these different nations and essentially across borders almost on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and because I mean, this is not a new development by any means in technology, but because these transactions are all handled online and these this money is effectively in numbers within a computer system, you have a lot more control in terms of who can move money when and where. Obviously, last week there was a lot of conversations about cutting Russia off from the SWIFT banking system. I would argue that this is more impactful than cutting Russia off from the SWIFT system, even though, you know, uh, obviously credit cards, debit cards are not used as widely uh, for large business transactions. They are still used in business transactions, but uh, not for large transactions like commodities, which is what Russia primarily deals in. Uh, This has more impact on not just Russian business, but also on Russian people. And that, of course, is the intent here is to uh, apply some pressure on the Russian people to in turn, apply pressure on their government. Yeah, to really get them to become more involved and engaged with the situation at large. I mean, 
you know, Swift in particular is more bringing access to international money and funds to Russian businesses and vice versa, bringing those Russian businesses to the more international community. Whereas economies essentially function off of their population's ability to buy and use what is provided by these businesses within their nation. But when you restrict the access people have to those funds to buy any Russian, you know, provided goods or services, it really puts additional constraints on the businesses that are already affected by these larger governmental sanctions. Well, and think about the impact on, you know, internet services, for example. If a Russian national now wants to get, say, a Netflix subscription, and Netflix may have an entity in Russia through which these payments can be processed, I'm not sure. Uh, and with this particular case, I'm just using them as an example. But if it was a U.S. company that didn't have a branch in Russia to accept payment in Russia, and this transaction was happening internationally, I think that would probably be limited by these restrictions, right? Yeah, I mean, it would certainly be flagged by the Visa and MasterCard systems. Now, it's this is very recent development, so it's not really clear how that would be affected by this. Uh, you know, Netflix in this case being a U.S.-based company, and you know, presumably the Russian population would have, at the very least, some serious difficulty in actually engaging in this transaction. But it sounds like it might be blocked altogether. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's incredibly impactful if you talk about (laughs) getting people to actually get motivated to go protest on the streets. And as far as we were talking about this uh, a little bit before we started recording, we've seen a lot of younger people out there protesting in the images that we are getting out of Russia. And of course, a lot of this is very hard to obtain accurate information out of Russia and Ukraine. There's a ma- major propaganda efforts uh, being undergone on all sides here, uh, but especially on Russian side. You know, Russia has heavily uh, controlled state media, and what what content we do get out of there comes from independent journalists or just non-journalists. Uh, you know, recording this information, and uh, we were commenting how you didn't see a lot of people who were who lived in the Soviet Union out there on the streets protesting this current action well even you know since the fall of the soviet union in the years since then it's been very almost systematic in the way that putin but not only him the russian government at large has systematically removed any potential threats to their structures of power and how they maintain that and russia has been no stranger to influencing their own population using some very grievous means. I mean, the um, Gulag archipelagos in the past were extremely horrifying, but they've also had, you know, instances of assassination attempts on other top political leaders who might challenge Putin. And protests are not a common thing in Russia. I mean, this is a very recent development that Russia has even permitted these. And it's very interesting to see that the Russian population is having these, you know, protests in many different cities spread across Russia, but they're nowhere near the scale 
of a protest that you might see in the United States or in France. It's very different dynamic and mentality that we're seeing over there. Well, and that's a whole interesting discussion in itself. Even when you see massive protests of, you know, just absolutely enormous scale in countries like the United States and in France. I mean, sometimes you do have major societal changes and impact. Of course, the civil rights movement was a very large protest movement that led to meaningful reform in the United States and uh, abroad as well. And other in other cases, you have the more recent protests we experienced uh, just in, within the last two years uh, were pretty large scale. However, I would argue that the impact of them in terms of a, from a policy standpoint was a lot less significant. And in a, a lot of cities, you know, we've seen police budgets increased actually instead of a decrease. So I wonder if uh, there's a, just a sense of cynicism uh, among the Russian populace about the efficacy of protests in their country. That's, I mean, I would definitely wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. And particularly, I think that's one of the main reasons that we're seeing the younger population really engage in these, these protests far more than, you know, anyone you know, middle-aged or even elderly, which, you know, traditionally, even in the U.S., elderly people don't typically protest for, you know, obvious health reasons and mobility issues as well. But there are uh, quite a few Russian people who were around during the Soviet Union and through its fall and have seen historically how the Russian government approaches protests. And it's not uncommon for protests to be put down with violent force or, you know, imprisoned en masse in order to actually suppress these kinds of outbursts. Yeah, and one thing that I think is kind of sad to see is the absolute vilification of Russian people, just ordinary Russian citizens. Uh, I wasn't expecting that rhetoric to amp up as quickly as it has. I mean, we're it's only been 10 days since this all began. And you've seen, uh, you know, Alex Ovechkin was uh, removed uh, from some sponsorship deal. He's just a hockey player. I don't know. Maybe I'm speaking out of line here and he's defended or advocated for the regime in the past. But I I really don't think so. He's not. uh, Yeah, not not that I'm aware of. But at the same time, it's been unanimous and across the board that, you know, the Russian gymnasts are being prevented from international competitions. And this isn't, strictly speaking, you know, a target against these individuals themselves, but it does seem like the West at large and really the world at large is distancing themselves from any connection with not only the Russian government, but also the Russian people who, you know, let's be honest in this entire situation, they're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of the burden on Russia's side. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Russia is an autocratic state. It's a little bit unfair to it's expected that the impact of whatever sanctions or whatever action that is taken against the Russian state, the Russian government, the Russian military will have disproportionate income on Russian citizens that private citizens. However, I think uh, it's, it's, you almost see a sense of glee from a lot of uh, prominent Western intellectuals and uh, advocates of this type of policy uh, in the, in the public sector is, uh, they, they kind of welcome 
the pain that the Russian people will experience over this. Well, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say so much glee as it is the sheer simplicity of, you know, the Russian state is clearly the aggressors in this case, and therefore the Russian people are effectively guilty by association, despite whether or not they even support their government's actions, which from quite a bit of the information we're getting from independent outlets in Russia seems to be that they do not support the Russian regime. Now, of course, there's all kinds of people in Russia, and I'm sure there are some people in Russia who support the regime for whatever reasons they have. I can't fathom them. Yeah, and Putin definitely does have you know some support within his country, clearly. It's not as if everyone is opposed to his actions here. However, I think this has kind of been a broader policy the West has taken for decades now. If you look at how we handled Saddam Hussein, the, I'm sanctioning a country like Iraq at that time you were not sanctioning Saddam Hussein. You were sanctioning the impoverished people within his country, and we were perfectly okay doing that at that time. Uh, the impact was mass starvation, actually, at that time. It was, it was far more uh, significant, and those people had far less control over who their leader was than arguably Russians do today. I mean, that being said, though, it's not entirely clear how much you know control or even really you know, influence the Russian people have over Putin's tenure. He's been such a, you know, long-standing leader as far as the world can see, but any substantial political rival has been eliminated, typically in yeah. the form of some version of assassination or, you know, whisked away from the world. Well, and I'm kind of surprised we haven't been hearing more from uh, Navalny at, at the current moment. I would have thought Western media would have been platforming him heavily right now. Maybe they have been. I, I haven't seen anything. Yet. Well, that that's kind of what I'm getting at here is like, not only has it been, you know, obviously Putin or some faction within the Russian government eliminating these threats, but at the same time, people like him aren't resurfacing. It's not like they evaded, you know, Russian capture or death and then, have been, you know, essentially biding their time for an opportunity. But even given these current events, they're not, they're nowhere. Even in an age where the internet could give them a voice, even without, you know, particular backing from any Western nation. Well, and this just goes back to what we were talking about last week with regards to people not being able to really speak when under under certain conditions when you have autocrats like Putin having become extremely bold over the last decade especially with assassinating political rivals uh, on foreign soil or and attempting to assassinate them through you know chemical means through radio <laughs> radiation like he's uh, he's employed a, a lot of uh, weapons that uh, violate the Geneva Convention uh, on Russian nationals who are living abroad. And uh, of course, that struck fear into the heart of anyone who would oppose him. And that's kind of the situation that we're at with his opposition. And it's uh, unfortunate that we let it get to this point. Of course, now we're dealing with the consequences of that is him being able to take this kind of action unilaterally unopposed. Uh, and likely all of the people backing him within his government would if if he were to be taken out, and this is something that you and I were speculating on earlier, it, it's it's 
you you said you think it's pretty likely that these actions would continue. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's it's very sad to see, especially from you know being a U.S. citizen, to see you know some congressmen, but also some you know private and you know private people and entities speculating on you know if Russians just dealt with Putin and you know somebody assassinated him or likewise removed him from power. I have, I've heard that sentiment a lot this week. The fact, like the idea that that would change anything is in and of itself insane and wrong. Like the whole, the whole um, political system in Russia has been essentially like maintained under Putin. And he's been given essentially free reign. Like we've been talking about to attack Russian nationals and other political opponents, not only within Russia, but abroad. And so when you have that kind of a political structure, especially at the top levels, Putin's been surrounded for decades by people who think, at the very least, ideologically similar to him, to himself. And so the idea that if Putin were removed, that any replacement that would step forward would be any different from Putin, especially ideologically, but also from just a general temperament and the way in which he would lead, the idea that that would be any different than what we have now is extremely unlikely. And it is far more likely, and I would argue virtually a certainty, that whoever would replace Putin would be exactly as bad, perhaps even worse than Putin. Because he's clearly got some agenda that he's pushing and we speculated on this a little bit earlier today as well as in our show last week about the actual reasons for mm -hmm. Russia engaging in this and it does seem to me to be from a legacy standpoint and what I was kind of conveying to you briefly earlier today was that it really doesn't seem like Putin is trying to forward his own legacy there's been not only no rhetoric but there is no clear objective by which Putin stands to gain anything from this conflict. In all respects, it's about the Russian Empire and the history of sovereignty between these two nations. And so it's very, very unlikely that any change in regime would effectively change Russia's goals in this endeavor whatsoever. Well, yeah, and... I, I think you're probably right about that. I don't know uh, much about the internal uh, structure of the Russian government and who Putin has surrounded himself uh, with closely. But I don't think uh, in, in a nation like Russia, it's not going to be a situation like taking out a dictator like Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein, where you take them out and essentially you have a massive power vacuum. I think that vacuum would be filled very quickly and there's already a plan in place for that to happen. Not unlike North Korea, it's a similar situation. If Kim Jong-un were to be taken out, his sister would, take, would seize power. And arguably, you know, some, some people speculate she would be worse than he is. Yeah, I mean, especially in the North Korean case, there's actually, you know, far less known about her. And so it's, you know, all signs point to it being largely the same. But at the same time, there's absolutely no indication that she would be dramatically different. And the same is the case for Vladimir Putin. Whereas the vast majority of what we in the West typically refer to as 
Putin's inner circle are almost exclusively former KGB or now FSB operatives, agents, and, you know, administrators. Well, and also the oligarchs who he relies on to finance operations. and Well, correct. And the oligarch situation in Russia is quite different than the majority of Western nations. I mean, we have a number of very powerful, very influential businessmen, but they do not behave in any respects similarly to how Russian oligarchs behave. And it's very interesting to kind of compare and contrast the two different systems, because while they are very influential and impactful in the Russian government, they don't actually have any real control over what the government itself does. They're more pieces to be used by the government. I mean, I think that's pretty clear this week. They've been impact. Uh, the Rus- Russian billionaires have been targeted heavily in the sanctions that have been levied against them this week. And you've seen them pretty much not be able to say much of anything against this. You know, Russian nationals who have gained citizenship elsewhere and are prominent businessmen have spoken out against this. But you, you will not see any Russian billionaire uh, who's a Russian national actually speak out against this action in Ukraine. Yeah, I think there's, well, just this past week, I think there have been two really key examples of the situation for those individuals in Russia. There was a prominent um, Russian investor who went on air and had a soda and gave a toast to the death of the Russian economy, while at the same time not declaring that you know anything against Putin or the actions of the regime. I'm pretty sure that was a beer he was drinking. Was it? <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I, I thought it could yeah. be a beer, but the a news article I said said soda, so I wasn't <laughs> sure. But um, I also did see multiple reports that another Russian oligarch actually just um, committed suicide. Hmm. And that that was very oh, surprising okay. to that's, me. Uh, and that's again, suicide. this is this is Russia. And so suicide. Yeah. You know, it's very unclear whether it was actually a suicide or whether the Russian government, you know, thought he was going to give out information or come out against the regime. And so they just did away with it beforehand. That's that's a key example of the way the Russian state likes to deal with these types of issues. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's definitely, it's par for the course for them. And the circumstances under which he was found uh, hanged in his garage, I believe. I believe, yes. It was, uh, I mean, it's possible, of course. It is entirely possible. I don't know the details of the case. I haven't uh, delved into that, but. That's also the nature of the situation right now. And it's propaganda and it's very unclear even amongst our own media, what is, you know, available to be confirmed and what is purely speculation at this point, as well as on the Ukrainian or even the Russian side. Well, yeah, I'd say it's, it's probably more likely he got Epstein in his garage. And uh, speaking of that, propaganda has been a major element of this. Of course, we knew that the information that we were getting between last Thursday when this occurred and last Saturday when we uh, recorded our uh, last episode on this, we knew that a ton of that information would come out and prove to be either misleading or false. And that has been the case for a lot of this information. And of course, Russian state media has been cut off from the global access that they did have. Of course, they already had 
heavy labeling. I believe, you know, YouTube, Twitter, all these platforms were labeling anything posted by RT or Sputnik or any of these Russian state affiliated media. They were labeling it as Russian state media pretty clearly. So anybody could could see. I don't know how much impact that has on, you know, the average person who just goes and watches something. I think well, most people want to have their biases reinforced. I think that's I think that's more telling about the content that people choose to watch more so than it is the platforms. It is interesting though how there's such a big debate about censorship on these platforms and even particularly in the Ukraine and Russia situation where um I believe it was uh Starlink was approached by some governments in order to um censor Russian state media from being broadcast in Ukraine using these platforms. But I think they've these platforms traditionally have been very clear in the nature of who is providing you this information. They've never tried to hide or allude to where the information came from, but at the same time, they really haven't taken any additional steps to point out aspects of it. In, in, in this particular case, propaganda as opposed to what we've seen in the past, more of, you know, misinformation, et cetera, regarding the pandemic. But they're still allowing all of this different media to be available to whomever wants to see it. And I think that's where you really see people who like to reinforce their own biases and really people like to watch content that they agree with. It's very upsetting to watch a video about something that you disagree with. And most people, I'm broad strokes here, but most people tend to watch media that they enjoy and people enjoy being agreed with. Yeah. And just with regards to what pro-Russian uh, Ukrainians there are, I don't imagine there's uh, quite so large a number of them as there was uh, two weeks ago after you know seeing the devastation of their country and uh, just complete crippling uh, you can still see this in a lot of the balkan states uh the damage that was done from the wars in the 90s and the early 2000s that, that's still there you would need a pretty serious effort to rebuild ukraine even from the damage that has been done just in these last uh, 10 days and russia is obviously not targeted all critical infrastructure because they need to rely on that infrastructure in order to run their supply routes as well currently and Ultimately, obviously, if you're attempting to invade and occupy a country, you don't cripple everything because, you know, that's uh, that's territory that you're going to be you're attempting to occupy down the line. Well, that's also one of the very interesting things in this new age of, you know, the Internet and propaganda and just this conflict in general is, you know, historically speaking, we've seen lots of different nations and really civilizations over the centuries use sort of scorched earth tactics in order to you know either slow down invaders or invaders using these to eliminate you know the defenders from being able to really fight back but in this day and age that's like almost a foreign concept to a conflict such as this because in either respect you need some form of infrastructure in order to continue pushing. So on the Ukrainian side, in order to effectively push the Russians back, they need infrastructure that they can reuse. 
and you know on on the other side of that with the Russians in order to gain a foothold and continue pushing in they need this infrastructure not only now but in the event that they were to succeed they'd end up pouring their entire economy into rebuilding Ukraine just to get these infrastructures back in place in order to actually occupy and hold it well and i i do have a feeling that if ukraine is successfully able to repel russia or if a ceasefire agreement of uh, like a meaningful long term ceasefire agreement uh, is made i should clarify because a uh, ceasefire was announced uh, less than 24 hours ago on uh, two particular regions in order to facilitate uh, supplies and uh, refugees movement uh, however that uh, according to current information that uh, did not last uh, even the the duration of the day. Yes. I mean, uh, recent reports that we were talking about from earlier today have already indicated that shelling has already resumed and that these ceasefire zones are effectively not being observed by both sides anymore. It's unclear, of course, who started or, you know, who broke the ceasefire, for example. But there also are indications that they are continuing or resuming ceasefire conversations and i hope that they will prove fruitful but this is the nature of war and neither side is trying to actually come to any peaceful agreement they are in a very much a aggressive conflict right now and it's unclear how that will move forward and we talked about this a little bit last week but sweden and finland pushing forward on eu membership or sorry on nato membership that's a that's a pretty significant step. Ukraine has moved towards EU membership. So it is an important distinction to make that Ukraine is pressing forward with EU membership effectively now. They want to start discussing it and trying to move the application or membership process forward. Whereas Sweden and Finland have indicated that that is their intention, but is very much more of a national discussion within their respective nations they've always been friendly to nato and have in many cases assisted with you know joint military exercises or logistical support for any nato you know nato or nato allies that exist within those nations in the terms of bases or you know simply transport through their regions well yeah they have a much Scandinavia has a stronger alignment with Western Europe than the former Soviet uh, states do. However, Norway is already a NATO member. So Sweden, like you said, Sweden and Finland will discuss internally. They don't have the pressure on them that Ukraine currently does. They just have the potential threat of a, you know, of conflict being near their borders if well, Russia is successful in taking Ukraine and moves into other former Soviet states. Yeah, well, I think the aggression by Russia is really sparking the interest there because I think to some degree they were comfortable where they were kind of sitting, you know, alone effectively in their um, Nordic alliance. I believe it's Nordevco. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really have to concern themselves as Russia's aggression isn't aimed at them. Like, they're very much out of the way of Russia's key objectives. 
which is you know effectively gaining a foothold in Russia or in Europe to some degree, but also preventing Ukraine from being a NATO ally directly on their doorstep. So speaking of that, I want to hear your thoughts on just the escalation of rhetoric over the last 48 hours in particular with regards to a lot of people pushing for a no-fly zone in Ukraine. There's not a lot of interest from uh, public policymakers' uh, perspective for that from a European or U.S. standpoint, knowing that that is a notable military escalation from uh, parties that are not currently militarily involved in yeah, this conflict. Essentially, that's the issue, is Ukraine is clearly outmatched in you know the Air Force capabilities. Now, Ukraine's Air Force still remains effective, and they have fighters and all sorts of anti-air still combating the Russians. Well, and they've been but, provided a substantial amount of arms from other European yes, countries. Quite a few States. assets, as I understand it. Um, Britain and some other nations have also provided aircraft to Ukraine as part of their support of this. And I know even the U.S. government is in talks about what we can do. But the no-fly zone in particular stands to benefit Ukraine and directly puts any nation that would enforce such a no-fly zone in direct conflict with Russian military, which not only is an escalation of the war, but also directly in, engages a foreign entity from engaging in this conflict. And it's very interesting, like you mentioned with the rhetoric, along with the no-fly zone, Putin has said, well, I've seen him quoted multiple places, as saying the sanctions enacted against um, Russia are they are themselves a declaration of war. It's very, it's very clear to me anyway that Russia is already at war with the entirety of the West. Whether the West chooses to acknowledge that and to what degree they respond is effectively up for debate and each individual country. I think you're completely right there, and I. I don't like to sound like an alarmist, but that is, for in Putin's mind, this is already World War Three. I mean, this is the early early stage of of that. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about you know the Russian Empire as it stands today in you know sort of the shadow of the former Soviet Union. This is about the East versus the West to some degree. Now, I mean, you know, China's not involved, and as you know, we were discussing this a bit earlier today, China still to this point is not even a player in this conflict. They are very much a third party, and I would describe them as more of a game master. They're sort of pulling some strings and hinting and influencing from the outside, but they directly have no stake on either side in this conflict. No, they don't. And they know that both sides want them to do a certain uh, to take a certain course of action. Uh, however, both sides are probably unwilling to actually directly request that of the Chinese, knowing the weak diplomatic position that would put them in. I, I think that uh, during uh, Biden's first press conference uh, in the aftermath of uh, these events uh, last week, he was asked by uh, a reporter on whether the United States has asked China to take uh, to. Uh, impose sanctions on Russia, which is not even a, you know, not even anything that consequential. Not acting, asking them to broker a deal or anything like that, act as a middleman. 
of any sorts, but just asking them to impose sanctions. And uh, he uh, specifically said no. And well, he actually answered that question. Yeah, but at the same time, that's partially the nature of diplomacy. Um, you're not, if you allude to or indicate such a conversation or deal before they have agreed to it, you've effectively killed the deal already. That's true, and, but it just shows that even if we were applying any pressure in that direction, that we were un- unwilling, unable to get any right. solid commitment. And so I, th- I think the key word there is pressure. Yeah. And so have we requested it? There's no doubt in my mind that we have. And at the very least, if not the U.S., then other European nations have definitely, definitely um, pushed. Well, there have been public calls on the Chinese, absolutely, pushed their re- by diplomats. Pushed too. their requests. Mm-hmm. But applying pressure to China is a very dangerous topic, especially currently, because any pressure that one side, whether it be you know the Western forces in support of Ukraine or Russia or any of their support pressuring China to take their side, it's very dangerous to apply pressure to someone who is more of an you know game master type sponsor than an active player. Because they're in a position to take advantage of any misstep, let's say, in diplomacy. So if Russia were to start pressuring China to do more in support of Russia, China's just going to distance themselves from Russia and gain all the benefits from the Western powers, since Russia is being, you know, in some respects, hostile to them in applying that pressure, regardless of their, you know, previous diplomatic relations. And the same thing with respect to the West. We don't want to encourage China to engage more with Russia, while at the same time, we cannot entice them to our side of this conflict either. One of the things that I think is interesting about this scenario is the fact that it was arguably expected that Russia could not gain any uh, more serious alliance or any serious commitment from China uh, prior to uh, launching their invasion on Ukraine. But it remains to be seen how other regional partners of Russia's that are hostile to Western forces, uh, Iran in particular is uh, what comes to mind, Uh, especially as we're in the midst of uh, renegotiations on the uh, JCPOA or more commonly known as the Iran deal, uh, attempting to could persuade the Iranians to not pursue uh, further refinement of nuclear material to uh, weapons-grade uranium. Uh, That's kind of interesting that this situation with Russia does serve to benefit both China and Iran and any other adversarial country with the West because they know that this is a precarious situation diplomatically, uh, more so than it has been for the past several years, and they can take more liberties. They're definitely getting a lot more freedom and less scrutiny in their own respects, especially in the case of the Iranian deal, is like Russia has effectively taken almost all of the attention. And I mean, you never take 100% of a nation's attention. The United States has a variety of government officials who focus on a number of different things, right? But when you have all this scrutiny applied to the current and obviously the most you know impactful at least in the next couple of days and weeks in the Russia Ukraine situation 
the nuclear armaments of a nation are very much second a secondary priority at this point because currently a nuclear power is engaged with Ukraine which everyone always has this concern in the back of their mind especially with the rhetoric of um Putin uh putting his own nuclear forces on higher alert and I think in particular in that case that was more geared to the actual shelling and um, seizing of the Ukrainian nuclear power plant far more than any indication of Russia using a nuclear weapon. And I think a big reason for that is if Russia were to deploy a nuclear weapon, that immediately forces China to distance themselves from Russia. Now, whether that would indicate them aligning with the West, I don't think that's very likely. But if Russia were to use a nuclear weapon, China's certainly going to be no friend to them. I think most likely, yes. Um, in perhaps 95 out of 100 scenarios that plays out, that would be the case. I think that it is very situation dependent. If If China can view it as a just use of uh, of a nuclear weapon, which I don't know what that is. Of course, that's a very so, ambiguous concept right. to begin with. But from the Chinese perspective, if it could be used, uh, if it could be viewed as justified, I mean, this is very, very much an evolving situation, of course. But is so in the event where some Western power, be it you know Britain, the U.S., etc., implemented a no-fly zone in Ukraine and Russia deployed a nuclear weapon, that could be seen as not necessarily justified, but a reasonable response. Well, in, I think in, there's in, a few steps of escalation. There I mean, that, we're glossing yeah. over some key details yeah. in these situations, but in China's view, in those instances, you could see it as you know not inherently negative to them, but the sheer nature of the amount of weapon nuclear weapons that Russia has versus the amount of nuclear weapons that China and the United States has, China and Russia have far more nuclear weapons than we do now. And a big reason for that is we've been part of the denuclearization over the past several decades. And I believe we sold a number of our nuclear weapons, quite a large number of them, to the Russians in not part our, of it. It's our of our uh, weapons grade uh, weapons grade uranium. Sorry, yeah. I'm sorry, not nuclear weapons themselves. But in the instance where a nuclear weapon is deployed, whether that be a Western power, Russia, or China, or even you know Korea, for example, you immediately isolate yourself in the fact that any other nuclear power is no friend to you. They don't want to irritate you and they don't want you to continue to use nuclear weapons, but they have nuclear weapons and are very much on the side of you not using yours. Like they have to live on this planet too, for example, right? And the instant, the ins, the very instant that you deploy a nuclear weapon, you have declared to the rest of the world that you are willing to deploy more. And that escalates us to essentially a cold war nuclear arms race all over again not in terms of how devastating or how many of them you have but the sheer fact that you have them and where they are aimed well and 
it's interesting you say that because in a sense, Ukraine is being staged as the new proxy, uh, the new proxy conflict with Russia. We've already been in a number of uh, proxy wars with Russia over the last decade, decade and a half, especially. And these conflicts have largely happened in the Middle East, uh, where, like you uh, say, for the same reasons as why a no-fly zone is not a popular policy position uh, among our elected officials here in the United States, it was not done in Syria for the same reason, because Russian military had heavy, heavy involvement in Syria and there was a pretty serious risk of our involvement in the Syrian civil war escalating to conflict with Russia, which, of course, I think most people would like to avoid if, if at all possible. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a big reason to why this um, particular conflict happened in Ukraine as well, because Ukraine is not a nation that is in a position to have a nuclear armament. And even in the event that they did, they're certainly not in a position to use it. If Ukraine were to use a nuclear weapon, that would immediately lose almost all support that you have from the West outside of Ukraine, not to mention the devastating it would affect, it would have on your own region and people. Yes, but I wonder how wise the policy of non-proliferation has been for the West to have taken all this time. Of course, I'm not saying I'm advocating for everyone to have nukes. However, there is a serious stalemate that is preserved when two countries that are at odds with each other are nuclear armed. And with regards to you, you're, you saying that about Ukraine not being positioned or equipped to have a nuclear weapon, I would generally agree with you there. But this is the reason why the uh, stalemate between Pakistan and India has been preserved for so long and hasn't escalated more severely is because they are both nuclear armed countries. And Pakistan is a, you know, it's, it is... It has some democratic institutions, but it is a far more theocratic-run uh, country than India is, for example. The West may be comfortable with India having nukes, but uh, Pakistan is uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's a government that has harbored terrorists explicitly on numerous occasions, terrorists from Afghanistan from that, and uh, those who have conducted uh, terrorist activity within India. So this is a government that has openly protected uh and those people and um forgetting uh, uh excuse me uh osama bin laden was in uh, pakistan yeah and there's i mean this is a perfect example and there's been a lot of fears over an escalation of conflict there but at the same time there has not been to my knowledge any real violent con conflict there i mean on a larger scale at least so what i'm saying is do you think that we would be experiencing the events of the last 10 days if Ukraine had a nuclear... Had oh, absolutely nuclear not. Capable. Exactly. And so the reason I think that is because, I mean, at this point, the Russians are within Ukraine. And those are the Russian military, let's say, that Ukraine is concerned with. Ukraine doesn't care or even really mind or even really give much thought at all to the fact that there are Russians within Russia. I mean, that's kind of self-explanatory. But... Well, this is a defensive war for them. Well, it is. But Russia is not going to in initiate a war with a country that they know can devastate them like that. Yeah. And that's where we get into, like we were talking about with Pakistan and India, but also with China and the United States and this idea of 
mutually assured destruction is in the event that you have even a single nuclear weapon, it is not in your best interest to agitate that entity, if, if at all possible. And so if Ukraine even had nuclear weapons, I think it's unlikely that Russia would have been so willing, I'll say, to actually go through with this invasion process. But at the same time, it's not obvious that it would have definitively stopped it either. Because it's still not clear what Russia's real intentions are. Obviously, they would like to win and install a some regime in Ukraine that is more friendly to Russia. But at the point where you are the smaller nation, militarily speaking, but also in terms of population and size, like you are far more willing to use anything at your disposal in order to defend yourself. Now, Ukraine is uniquely positioned to be much more friendly with NATO and Western powers. So I find it hard to envision a scenario where Ukraine would have used a nuclear weapon. But in the case of the Middle East, if any larger nation were to invade a Middle Eastern country, if they have nukes, they're using them. Well, and that's that's always been the concern with uh I think what we're seeing is that this policy of non-proliferation has failed in that in practice it's failed. Every dictator in the world has already been for several years but is going to be more so now pursuing uh, achieve, uh, attaining nuclear arms. You know, Kim Jong Un has been pursuing this for quite some time. They've slowed it down, I believe, uh, over the last several years, but not substantially and that's likely due to Chinese influence. Yeah, I think, and I know some key personnel in the military who agree with me on this, but it is the nuclear non-proliferation. The idea is not to stop anything nuclear from happening. The point of it is to reduce the impact should it happen. So the idea is to slow down the world-ending scenario, which for anyone viewing this, is extremely unlikely, even in this current conflict with Russia, that a nuclear weapon would be involved. But anyone who has ever studied the history of war to any real capacity should be able to come to this conclusion quite clearly, that as soon as a weapon has been developed, the only thing that will eliminate the fear of it to any world-ending degree is a defensive mechanism that can prevent it, which is a key problem, especially in the nuclear situation, because not only do you have to deal with the sheer devastation that a nuclear explosion causes, but you also have to deal with the radiation and all of the alternative effects that you get from such an event. Now, that means that the nuclear arms race and nuclear-assured destruction is effectively a constant until we develop something that can mitigate or at least or eliminate or at least mitigate the effects that that has on the world. Well, shed some light on that if you can. From a technological standpoint, what is the what are some of the big limitations with being able to intercept a ICBM uh, before it would be able to detonate like a, for a nuclear warhead? So full disclosure, I'm not a physicist, (laughs) 
but the I, you, this you interface with some systems that I I do work with a number of physicists, and the key problem is an engineering problem. And so what I mean by that is this is the same reason why it's extremely unlikely, and I would argue impossible, given generally available modern technology, that you could send a nuclear weapon up into space and have it re-enter the atmosphere. So essentially, a nuclear weapon is based on fission, which is splitting an atom, basically. And it is glossing over some of the you know key, more fundamental details. But when you're splitting a single atom, you have to have such a precise and accurate control over the environment. So any types of vibration can either set the system off prematurely. So in the case of the atmosphere, you could set off the actual bomb in the atmosphere instead of on your target. But you also have a variety of other issues in that it's extremely difficult to maintain that safely. And this is why in the event of any nation launching a nuclear warhead, every other nation has their satellites targeting these areas and keeping tabs on what's going on with these nuclear weapons. So in order to actually control this fission that's happening within the missile, or bomb in this case, you have to have such a precise and accurate control over the system in order to guarantee that it's not devastating to yourself, but also that it simply functions properly. And that's a very difficult scientific problem to maintain that, but it's also a very difficult engineering problem in that you need to structurally, but also spatially control all of the components within the missile. Well, in order so you're for talking about the ICBMs themselves. I, what I'm asking you about is why why can we not shoot a if a nuclear why can we not intercept ICBM, it? Yes, why can we not intercept? Okay, them? so the key problem there is most of these are. Most of these devices, I'll say, because it's missiles, but also all of the others, is the typical way you intercept a missile, any missile, is you shoot it and effectively, effectively activate it early so that it explodes in theoretically a neutral location in midair where it can't do any damage to populations or cities. Yeah, and in the case of a, a nuclear arm, you're just creating a dirty bomb at that point. Well, yes, but you also run the risk of basically it's the more the idea of acid rain to affect. And it's not acid rain in the way that you typically think of it. Basically, you're creating irradiated rain. So when when it rains, clouds in the atmosphere come together and bring moisture, right? Mm -hmm. And so when a nuclear weapon goes off, all of the radiation that would normally be on the ground that we saw in Japan when the United States fired off the two nuclear bombs, like that is effectively raining down from the sky on anything that is beneath it. So in the case of you know, Russia, for example, if they were to launch a nuclear weapon at the United States and we were to shoot it out of midair, all of that radiation will end up in the water supply eventually. And so in effect, you can never you it is impossible to stop 
a nuclear weapon that has been launched in an offensive manner such as that. The best case scenario is that you knock out its ability to propel itself Mm -hmm. or you knock out their control as far as aiming it. Now, (laughs) it's far more likely that anything you do to engage with the weapon is far more likely to set it off early. (coughs) And so in setting the weapon off early, you aren't, you aren't actually protecting yourself against it. The weapon isn't hitting its predetermined target, but at the same time, it is still having a devastating effect on the ecosystems at large. Sure. Yeah, because my understanding was that we do have the capacity to shoot missiles out of the air, and we do. I mean, Israel has the Iron Dome, and there's plenty of weapon systems that exist for this, but I, so you're, what you're saying is the consequences are not fully eliminated. You are yes. eliminating some of them, but you're also, you also have broader problems when a nuclear weapon has been used offensively. Isn't that, it's not just one. There's a lot more of them coming. Presumably. Well, so the big problem is that there's more of them. Yeah. So even if you stop one, there's still more coming theoretically. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of that is the nuclear explosion is devastating and is very destructive but the long-term ramifications of the radiation is what's really horrifying about these weapons it's not the sheer damage they do (coughs) excuse me it's the prolonged exposure you like some water i got you You may have slid over, like, I, I don't know, I'm hoping that uh, you're still around to hear this. <laughs> we, we, we can, let's, uh, let's rework that one. Yeah, I'll just use this one because I had yeah. one that I wanted to just use. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You just split us. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I I kicked it over as I was getting out. Oh okay. Well, yeah, I think as I usually do. Yeah, I think we're pretty good for uh, yeah wrapping up. Um, but yeah, so what's what's truly devastating about the nuclear weapons? 
isn't isn't necessarily the explosion. Obviously, the sheer destruction that's enacted by exploding a nuclear weapon is devastating. It's the radiation and the other side effects that are more prolonged well, and damaging. Yeah, to we've the talked about. I mean, obviously, the groundwater being infected with uh, radiation, and uh, I would argue that if you wanted to do more damage with a single nuclear weapon, um, a stratospheric explosion that would uh, act as a EMP would uh, probably do more damage to our way of life than nuking one city, for example. Yeah, I think, well, I think I would agree with that in most cases. Um, Cities are interesting in that they're more symbolic in that respect. Absolutely. But also, so the damage, like, an explosion like that going off in the stratosphere or broader atmosphere mm-hmm. in general is extremely damaging to communications infrastructures and low orbit satellites and those kinds of, I'll call them industries, but you know, broader concepts at large. But at the same time, those are all still things that are replaceable. So I think what's still more dramatic is whatever it is that is beneath them. Well, we'd lose so, all our production capacity too, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we have... Uh, well, so quite a bit of it. Pretty much all our computers would be fried? Um, quite a few could be. If we're talking about a sufficiently large... like You're talking about a sufficiently well, large with, EMP with what we know situation. of the scale of, let's say, Russia's largest uh, nuclear warhead, mm-hmm. these are orders of magnitude larger than the bombs that we used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I I think people don't really think about this much, but nuclear weapons didn't just stop being developed and they didn't stop making them bigger and more powerful right after. Yeah. I mean, I feel to some degree we would, you know, definitely need to discuss this with an actual physicist in order to get real insight into it, but I'll see if we can have one on one time. We'll get a guess sometime. Yeah. But, um, they are orders of magnitude bigger and more devastating. Now, to what effect that would actually have isn't entirely clear. Because when when you're splitting an atom at that level, there's a sheer amount of energy that is released based on the atom and how it is that you're splitting it exactly. And so there is a limitation to the size of the explosion, for example. Now the problem with that becomes the actual radiation and effects that go along with the explosion. So if you make the explosion bigger, the radiation spreads farther, for example. Now, it's, it would be devastating to any electronic system, even remotely in the area, but it's not immediately obvious how sustained that would be. So, for example, we produce computers and all types of electronics every day. And so it's fairly reasonable that within two to three years, maybe even faster than that, we would be able to replace the vast majority of any devices that would be damaged by such an explosion. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I, had, I had read somewhere that, uh, you know, given a sufficiently large 
uh, nuclear explosion uh, in the atmosphere over us that it would cover pretty much most of the continental United States, not all of it. But I guess uh, the scale of that, it's really questionable what, what level of impact it would have. And I, I know that, you know, solar a substantially large solar flare, you'd have a similar impact. It, well, so yeah. And a- after a certain point, the magnitude of the bombs do become much more similar to a solar flare, but the nature of how that affects electronic devices, for example, is not well understood on a more, you know, in my case, in my case, engineering sense, but in a more general sense at large, most of these weapons are almost entirely untested in actual real life environments, let alone in the atmosphere. But it's also not, it's also theoretical at this point that the devices would essentially be fried. It is entirely possible that some of these devices could be repaired. Um, I myself am not all that up to date on what it would take in order to do that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I would assume that it's not all components of the, I, I mean, some directed energy weapons have been used in, uh, in this capacity to, to dis- specifically to disable electronics, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's extensive research going on currently in order to ascertain how effective these would be in a war scenario. And um, with the advent of autonomous vehicles, even more so recently. But yeah, I mean, in the case of nuclear weapons, especially in the atmosphere, in my opinion, the most devastating result would be literally radiation falling from the sky and when you think about it in that type of an environment it's very conceivable that that would cover the majority of the united states if not a continent well so what you were saying was that that radiation because it has nowhere to go it essentially compounds into all the the condensate that's up there well so all the condensation that's in the air that effectively comes together and forms rain will bond with whatever is up there. Mm -hmm. And so when you have radiation in the air, you would, I mean, theoretically this hasn't actually happened. Sure. But what would happen in theory is you would literally have glowing rain fall from the sky and irradiate and devastate whatever it hits on the ground to, you know, lasting effect. That is horrifying. It is we've, a terrifying we've gone off idea. on an, enough of a tangent about uh, the nukes, though. It's 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 a fascinating conversation, even though, like like we said, it's not a you know I don't think it's a realistic scenario here. It's a it's a very unlikely scenario. There would have to be some pretty serious missteps by a number of parties for uh, it is, know, things to escalate to that point. And it, it is would, extremely extremely unlikely. And in the event of any nation be that Russia, China, the U.S., Korea, what have you, Iran, any of these nations, it would be unanimous. Everyone else in the world is against you. Yeah, which is really interesting just given the uh, establishment of the post-World War II power hierarchy and uh, the United States being staged on top of that despite being the only country to have used... uh, a nuclear war in uh in combat 
But all things considered, I do want to run back to one thing that we uh, missed talking about with regards to sanctions and their impact. Uh, in particular, just this centralization versus decentralization uh, thing that's going on right now. You have the West heavily unified and all of these you know, service providers and uh, governments taking relative alignment in terms of the direction and uh, weight of the sanctions that they're imposing against Russia. And then you have, uh, you know, you've had broad decentralization movements occurring over the last couple decades. A lot of, much of the internet has been built on that. And now we've seen that advance significantly with cryptocurrency uh, rising as a, uh, as a, as its tangible use cases increase. And that's been a huge uh, thing that a number of uh, Russian nationals that have been impacted by these sanctions have turned to. And of course, people in Ukraine have also turned to them, I believe, to receive donations from abroad uh, easily where, you know, without having to deal with banks and payment processors as middlemen. But uh, crypto has played a, a pretty big role and is playing an increasingly big role in Russia and how they handle certain transactions as the threat of being cut off from global financial systems that are controlled by centralized entities like uh, central banks and other banks. Yeah, so, I mean, in the particularly in the case of cryptocurrency, essentially anyone can join the network assuming they apply the protocols properly and subscribe to the same rules. And so that allows a lot of freedom in moving across borders and in particular in Russia, there's a lot of discussion about how that could be used in order to avoid these sanctions in many cases and what effect that will really have. Well, because we couldn't stop. Obviously, regulators have some control over cryptocurrency in that they can control the exchanges and services through which uh, these are processed. And crypto is going to be one of those things, I think. It's it's a very complicated, it's, it's a complex uh it's a more complicated means of transferring value than the simplicity of being able to open your bank or open Venmo to, to the average user. Uh, maintaining a crypto wallet and your keys and uh, doing all of this stuff, uh, may have, being responsible for your own security instead of being able to call your, like if your card gets, your credit card gets stolen, you'll call up your bank and you'll say, hey, can you reverse that? They're like, yeah, sure. You can't do that with cryptocurrency and that, uh, since people make mistakes and people make financial mistakes all the time, uh, adoption, I think, is going to be challenging for crypto in general until suffi a sufficient layer of software services that fill that, those gaps in, in protection uh, has been built. But now I wonder if U.S., this, uh, the Federal Reserve and uh, the Treasury Secretary has already been, they've already made a number of statements on cryptocurrency over the past year in the, here in the United States. And they've been taking an increasingly hawkish stance on regulating it as it's grown in uh, explosively in value over the last uh, two years in particular. And while, you know, most of these uh, top cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum are down over 50% from their peaks. Uh, earlier uh, uh, last year, I, I I do wonder if heavier Russian adoption of cryptocurrency is a uh, big uh, does does big damage to adoption globally 
of uh, crypto. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't think that it will have a substantial effect on adoption. And the main reason for that. <clears throat> sorry, I should have said regulation. Well, regulation yeah. or adoption. But in the case of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a decentralized and technically secure system. And what I mean by that is it, there is no administrator that can make more Bitcoins. And so what I think we're going to see a lot more, at least especially because of more widespread adoption in these type of sanction and other environments that are lend themselves to more unregulated nature of finances. I think it's going to be interesting to see how nations respond. What I'm afraid of is that they will restrict the use of coins such as Bitcoin and some of the Ethereum, other coins that we've seen that aren't tied to any nation. And my fear is that the United States and other nations around the world will create their own cryptocurrencies that are essentially digital versions of, for example, US dollars or euros that we currently have. Well, there's a lot of countries that are exploring uh, establishing uh, stable coins that are managed by their central monetary authority. That's essentially the issue, though. And the issue that Bitcoin essentially solved in its invention is that there is no one who can print more money because they decided to, which thereby stabilizes its value. Now, with well, it hasn't really stabilized it. It's caused, you know, so the it's value increased its value substantially. It has, and the value of a Bitcoin is extremely stable. Now, the value of the Bitcoin as a market value, in terms of an actual currency that can be used, is heavily dependent on how that currency is perceived. What do you mean when you say that the value is stable? So the value of a Bitcoin, there are only so many Bitcoins. So Bitcoin is not susceptible to inflation. So you're, you're indexing that to the energy cost of at what it costs to... What it costs to mine and generate yeah. a Bitcoin. And so once Bitcoin reaches its maximum, I believe it's something like 21, 21 million. million, I think. And um, once it reaches that max you effectively mine Bitcoin by doing work and actually functioning the system and maintaining it. And so in that respect, the value of a Bitcoin is tied to what someone is willing to accept for it, of course, like any other currency. But the Bitcoin's value cannot be changed by a third party. So for example, in the US, the US dollar's value can be changed for example, by the Fed printing more money, you know, and causing inflation to some degree, whatever yeah. that money is used for. And that's exactly what we've seen rampant in uh, Western countries, especially in Japan uh, over the last couple of years is uh, uh, we talked about this in uh, our first recording, but we didn't that we didn't publish it. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be digging into uh, monetary policy and uh, Federal Reserve and how we've gotten into the situation we're in right now uh, sometime in the future. Uh, I do just want to mention again, we're definitely not uh, going to be focusing on current events uh, every single week here. It's just there's been some pretty significant events uh, right around the time when we decided to start recording this show. And uh, I think it's 
absolutely worth covering and having this conversation. And uh, I think we'd be uh, doing people a disservice if we didn't talk about these events right now uh, in the in the scope of the other uh, subjects that we're talking about, especially with regards to markets and uh, the future. Cryptocurrency in particular has been perceived as this store of value, much like gold. And you know, gold prices have been suppressed heavily. If you held gold 10 years ago, it's worth roughly the same as it was 10 years ago, which is worth less considering that you have to convert it to fiat currency in order to spend it on anything. And uh, inflation is something that none of us can escape, and it's been uh, really escalating uh, to a significant degree, especially in Western countries. And there's no end in sight with that. It uh, really seems like that is the policy, uh, that is the preferred policy position of our monetary authority, the Federal Reserve. And it's this perverse partnership between the Federal Reserve and uh, our, our, the U.S. government, the legislature, wanting to spend money infinitely on every single pet project that they have. Uh, and this is, a, this is a bipartisan thing. This is not a I, I'm not uh, targeting any any one particular political group here, but the best way to eliminate that absurd debt that we've placed ourselves into is to inflate it away from the Federal Reserve and from the government's perspective. Um, the impact of this is on uh, ordinary people, and uh, this is the the kind of of things that we're that we will possibly see in these coming months due to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, especially with regards to energy markets. Uh, that's the area that people are going to feel it most directly is in energy prices. I was shocked to see uh, gas at almost $4 here in the Midwest. Uh, that's, I mean, I think it's California may have hit that uh, several months ago, but uh, to see it at those prices here is uh, pretty staggering, and that has an impact on every part of the supply chain, which is already strained. and. Uh, yeah, I believe I saw an article earlier today that it's almost it's at uh, seven euros in some places in Europe. So they're definitely getting yeah. Well, hit Europe hard has with this Euro, as well. Oh yeah, Europe has a lot higher taxes uh, on petroleum products, and I can't even imagine what it's like uh, in uh, in South Asia right now. In uh, India, we we purchase uh, petrol and diesel by the liter, and uh, it's uh, probably like two and a half, three times as expensive as it is here typically. And uh, that's just the, the, the benefits of cheap energy that we've had for so long because the U.S. is a pretty large producer and has had a ton of control and influence over this global energy market. Now, with Russia, a huge producer globally, being not really taken out of the chain, everyone is still buying energy from Russia. And that's the one action that has not been taken that remains to be seen you know that maybe as as uh, we move into spring if this conflict is still ongoing we could potentially see europe reducing uh, significantly their uh, russian gas exports and that would uh, that would have a huge impact on russia that's pretty much the one thing that they cannot sustain economically uh for any any reasonable uh period of time so yeah, I, th I think it definitely remains to be seen uh, what happens here. And we will periodically be covering this, but uh, from I think from next week onward, we're going to be going into just kind of diving into some of the more specific subjects uh, within the areas of technology finance uh, that we want to interact with. And there's 
a little scattering of some uh, some philosophical musings about uh, just how it impacts culture and society more broadly. But um, yeah, I just want to say thanks for listening. Uh, we appreciate uh, all of you people who are listening to us uh, very early on. We're both pretty new to this still, um, so we hope to get better with time and uh, deliver uh, some better conversations to you. But uh, we also hope to be having some uh, exciting guests coming up soon. Um, we are most likely, I'm not going to confirm it yet, but uh, most likely going to be having somebody on to discuss uh, the current state of uh, cybersecurity, in, uh, uh, especially with uh, private corporations uh, here in the U.S., uh, not so much the uh, government side, but that is an area that has been a hot topic as of late with we've seen Pacific oil and gas uh, over on the East Coast get ransomwared uh, last year. And this is, uh, you know, had major impact, major data breaches have been happening. A lot of people's payment information is compromised currently. And uh, uh, you can actually look that information up too to see how many of your passwords have been compromised in past data breaches and how many of those websites have your payment information stored on them. And uh, so, yeah. Glenn, you want to? <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, especially when I'm, one thing I'm excited about for our guests, hopefully next week yeah. um, in particular, is to shed some light on, you know, what what the actual response is from the private sector on some of the cybersecurity and cyber attacks that we have seen and some of the areas in which they're most concerned about. I know just re- very recently, uh, NVIDIA has been a key target of a number of cyber attacks and they're a graphics card producer, not something that's typically targeted in this domain. Yeah, that is, I mean, every, everybody's getting targeting targeted out there, right? It's you cast a broad enough net, you're going to catch something. And, uh, I think that may be the approach of, uh, a lot of these, uh, in, in NVIDIA's case, that may be more targeted, but, uh, yeah, hopefully we get to have some interesting mm-hmm. conversations about topics like, cybersecurity and kind of breaking down uh, more complex subjects like why is our stock market so inflated right now? Why is our housing market in the conditions it's currently in? And what will happen and what do we think will happen in the future uh, with that? And how can you best prepare yourself uh, given that information? I think that's uh, some of the types of conversations that we'd like to be having on here. And as Subash mentioned at the start of this episode, we do want to focus this this channel on um, mostly finance and technology. So if there's any areas in that in which you're particularly concerned or would like to know more that we maybe touched on but not dived deep enough for you, let us know. We'd be happy to do uh, more conversations on yes, that. Yes, please, please give us feedback. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, thank you again for listening and, uh, you can check out our YouTube channel. Uh, that's, uh, esoteric artifacts and we're the same on uh, Spotify as well. Uh, those are currently the only two platforms that we're on, but if, uh, if there's any demand, uh, to put us on anything else, I would have no problem, uh, posting it. Yeah. I'd definitely else. be open to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>